Listen, this is Palm Sunday, and uh, it's the Sunday traditionally that, or historically, that Jesus came into Jerusalem riding in on a donkey. Uh, people were laying the palm branches down in front of him, were laying their cloaks on the ground in front of him, and they were all celebrating, uh, singing Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They thought that this was going to be their opportunity to overthrow Rome and get out from underneath their oppression and the tyranny that they were under. Uh, it turned out a little bit different. That's why that crowd went from singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him just a few days later. But this being Palm Sunday, I wanted to do something just a little bit different. And we will celebrate Passover this coming Thursday in our Monday Thursday meal covenant. We have this, we'll have this place packed out and uh, decorated like a, a banquet, and we will eat together. And we will share our meal covenant. That's our opportunity as our church family to be able to eat together as we kind of kick off the Easter weekend, uh, welcoming and praying for people to come into our house on Friday, Good Friday, on our Saturday block party, and all of our services on Easter. We're praying that God would bring them in to this house so they could find out that Jesus is the answer. So that's what we, that's what we do on Thursday night. But uh, we will celebrate that on Thursday. But what you see here behind me is a little representation of what it might have looked like for Jesus and his disciples on that Thursday night of Holy Week, the Last Supper, the last Passover. In fact, we've all been accustomed to see the picture of uh, the, the painting that Leonardo da Vinci did, because in 1494, Leonardo da Vinci was commissioned by the Duke of Milan to create an inspirational mural that would go in the dining room of the convent of Santa Maria. And as an appropriate theme for that mural, he chose this moment, the moment right after Jesus says to the disciples, one of you will betray me. And he tried to capture the look on the disciples' face and on their faces what might have been going through their minds. Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, captures this story. And let's begin reading with verse number 20. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were there eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Or the King James Version says, Lord, is it I? So each one began to ask the question, is it me? And it's interesting that the Bible does not say that one of them said, well, I know it's not me. Every one of them, one after the other, questioned, is it me? And it goes on in verse number 23, it says, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, says, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, you will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, Jesus sat down with his disciples at this very historic and iconic moment right after he says, one of you will betray me. Now you think about it. These disciples, they've been following the Lord for at least three years. They've seen more miracles than they could probably recall. Yet in this instant, when Jesus says this, they're, they're all saddened and shocked and their minds begin to race with all kinds of thoughts. And they said, as the scripture said, one after the other, you, you don't mean me, do you? You're not talking about me, are you? And so there are three takeaways from this message today that I'm going to give you up front. Usually the takeaways come at the end, but three takeaways that I want you to get out of this. Today. Number one is that we all have the ability to betray the Lord. If the disciples question themselves, I'm pretty sure we would question ourselves. Now, I've betrayed the Lord. You've betrayed the Lord. We've all betrayed the Lord at one time or another. But my hope and my prayer today is that we would grow more and more in love with the Lord, that we would, uh, we would become less inclined to betray the Lord and more inclined to follow him no matter what. That's what I'm desiring. Because I know we all have the ability to betray the Lord, but let our hearts grow more and more in love with him that it would never be so. Number two, we all need his strength to live for the Lord. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it. How many of you tried to do it on your own? We can't do it. Even the Bible says that our best is like filthy rags. So we need the help of the Lord. We need the strength of the Holy Spirit in order to live our lives faithful to the Lord and in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And so I'm hoping today that we would walk out of here strengthened by the Lord, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to him. And if you've not been doing that up to this point, I believe that God can give you that ability because it has to come from God above. It's not something that we do on our own. We, we don't find this strength with just a determination alone. We don't find the strength to stay faithful to the Lord just with more knowledge of the scripture. No, no, it comes from heaven above. And so I'm believing that God's going to give that to those who need it today. And number three, we all face the possibility that we may die for, for the Lord. Yeah. That, now I know that's not an encouraging, comforting messages, but I believe as followers of Christ, we must be all in. Everybody say all in, all in, even to the point of death. Now what's interesting today is this, this kind of talk sounds very cultish. You know why it sounds cultish is because we've become accustomed to only a message of comfort, a message of encouragement, a message of well-being. We've lost the fear of the Lord, and we have forgotten that our lives do not belong to ourselves. Our lives belong to the Lord. We belong to him, every bit of us. And just, just think what was going through the minds of the disciples when they heard this statement from Jesus that one of you will betray me. I know there's no way that we really can know. But if we just suppose for a moment, think about Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. He was the first to bring someone to the Lord who became a follower. He brought his brother Peter to the Lord. He also brought the boy with the five loaves and the two fishes. 
that Jesus took and he multiplied and fed the 5,000. So Jesus must have seen something of value in Andrew that maybe others overlooked. Now, he wasn't part of the inner circle like Peter, James, and John, but come on. I mean, what greater life could afford a fisherman than to be one of the original 12 of the followers of Jesus Christ? But here's Andrew now asking himself, is it me? Are you, are you talking about me? And then there's James the elder. This is the brother of John. He was mending his nets with, uh, while they were their fishing nets, when Jesus came and called him to follow, he quickly dropped the nets and began to follow Jesus. In fact, he was with Jesus at the house of Jairus whenever Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He saw it with his own eyes. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration whenever he saw Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. He was, in fact, it was James, the elder, that said to Jesus, hey, can I sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can drink that cup. And that's when Jesus began to teach him that he who wants to be first must become servant of all and demonstrated it by washing the disciples feet before they had supper. He taught James that God's way was a way of love. But now James is questioning. Am I the one? Then there's Matthew. And this was a peculiar one. Matthew, the tax collector, he was collecting taxes at the gate of Jerusalem whenever Jesus called him. And he had a whole lot to wrestle with, kind of unlike the, unlike the other disciples. He had a lot of wealth. He had power, prestige. He had a position that he had to lay all of that aside in order to follow Jesus. But there was something that was captivating about Christ that he could not shake. In fact, when Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. All the confusion and all the unrest left his soul. And he knew that Jesus was the one he had to follow. So he put all of that aside and followed Jesus. Yet now he's questioning, am I the one you're talking about? And then there's Philip. Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee. He was with several of his friends in Bethany, listening to John the Baptist. And Jesus called them to be his followers. In fact, his faith continued to grow deeper. His faith continued to grow stronger. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, it was Philip who said, where are we going to get bread to feed all of these people? Not knowing that Andrew had already brought the little boy with the fish and the bread. Now he wonders who in this group is going to betray the Lord. Could it be me? And then there's Thomas. Most of us would have picked Thomas. Thomas, the doubter, doubting Thomas. Deep down, he's not really a doubter. He just wants proof before he believes, which is not look like, unlike most of us. In fact, he was there when Jesus received the news about Lazarus from Mary and Martha that Lazarus had died. And the first thing Jesus said was, let's go to him. But then some of the other disciples said, no, it's not safe. The opposition is too great. We shouldn't make that journey right now. So they delayed. But it was Thomas that spoke up right then and said, well, come on, let us also go with him that we may die with him. So everybody remembers Thomas's fear, but they don't remember Thomas's faith. So it's, it's not hard to think that it could have been Thomas, but here's Thomas questioning himself. And then there's John, the beloved. 
John was called to follow Jesus when he was mending his nets with his father Zebedee and his brother James. And there's no doubt that Jesus has changed John's life and taught him that love was the key to life. And that's the very thing that John became known for, love. He was a lover. He would have been the one right in the middle of our singing, our, our singing this morning, I love you, Lord. He'd have been right down here with his hands up. He was a lover. It was God's wonderful love that changed John's life. But now this news, it hits him hard as somebody could betray that kind of love. And he even asked himself, is it me, Lord? Then there's James the Less. It's a familiar name. So James the Elder, the oldest, James the Less, the younger. He, was, he first saw Jesus passing down the road at a place near where John the Baptist was baptizing, and he moved in to take a little closer look. And it was there that he saw John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove come down upon Jesus. And he heard the words from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased as God spoke from the heavens about Jesus. He's there. And after that, James is called to follow Jesus. But now he's questioning even himself. Could it be me? And then there's Thaddeus. Thaddeus was chosen to be one of the 12 to become the cornerstone for this new kingdom, just like the, the 12 tribes of Israel were the cornerstone for the old Jewish kingdom. But now Jesus has called these 12 and commissioned them with authority over unclean spirits and to preach the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, he was there when Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now to think that the one who came to bear others' burdens, has another burden placed upon him, the burden of the knowledge that one of his closest will betray. And Thaddeus is questioning himself. Then there's Nathaniel. Nathaniel, like many of the others, was a fisherman. He was, one of the, he was first a disciple of John the Baptist. But it was a friend named Philip who came to him and said, hey, we found the one whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Nathaniel was a little skeptical at first because he said, how could God's anointed come out of such a small little place? But Philip simply replied, come and see. And so Nathanael followed Philip and went to Jesus. And as soon as he saw Jesus, Jesus said to him, hey, there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. No guile. And Nathaniel looked at him and said, how, how do you know me? And he said, before Philip called you, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And what he was saying to Nathaniel is, I knew you before you were even born. I have known you every day since. That's all Nathaniel needed in order to believe. And he became a follower. But now he's questioning himself. Am I the one that's going to betray you? Are you talking about me? And then there's Simon, Simon the Zealot. He was part of a hot-headed, bloodthirsty revolutionary group called the Zealots who were all for armed rebellion against Rome. They wanted to reestablish King David's glorious kingdom. But now Jesus is talking about another kingdom, the kingdom of the human heart. And Simon realizes that the real and true conquest is the conquest of the heart. He has found freedom in Christ. He no longer fears Rome. Rome is mighty, but God is almighty. But now he's realizing there's a spiritual Roman among them. Could it be Simon? 
He's the only zealot, former zealot. Then there's Peter. Peter is whom I identify with and probably most of us identify with. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, was he referring to Peter? We know that Peter, because we know the rest of the story, denied Christ three times. But I bet Peter was wrestling with two trains of thought, two types of emotions, because we know how he defended Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and cut the ear off of the man as they tried to arrest Jesus. So I bet Peter has this one thought, what he's going to do to the one who betrays Jesus. But he has another thought. Could it be me? Because he's questioning his own faith and has his own doubts as probably most of us do. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story about Judas. All the others came from Galilee. Judas came from a village in Kerioth in Judea. That's why he's known as Judas Iscariot. The others must have had confidence in him because they chose him to be their treasure. Jesus must have trusted him because he chose him to be one of the 12. Some accused him of misappropriating money and using it for personal use. Others thought that Jesus was talking about him when he talked about the love of money. And others thought they were talking about, he was, Jesus was talking about Judas whenever he said, did I choose 12 of you and one of you is a devil? He definitely complained when Mary washed Jesus' feet with the expensive perfume. He thought it was a waste of money. But was Judas acting completely out of selfishness or was he forcing an issue to make Jesus assert himself as God's Messiah? This is what I think would be helpful for us today is not just remember the lives or how these disciples lived. We know they had some ups and downs. We know they had some doubts about themselves. We saw them get their face shaken whenever Jesus was crucified and they gathered in the room and Jesus had to appear to them for them to believe that we know that they were human. They had shortcomings. But it's more important that we know how a person dies, I think, rather than how they live. Because the change that Jesus made in their lives allowed them to be all in for Jesus. So how did these disciples die? If I can just go back through them real quickly here. Andrew, he was crucified at Odessa on a cross that was, I mean, a cross that was shaped like an X. The bottom portions of the cross were deep into the ground. In fact, it was called the St. Andrew's cross. James, the elder was put to death by Herod Agrippa. And as he was led away to the place where he was to be killed, his accuser was brought to report of his conduct. And the accuser told of the apostles' extraordinary courage. And then his accuser fell down on his knees and requested a pardon, confessing himself to be a Christian. Because he said, I do not want James to receive the crown of martyrdom alone. And he chose to be martyred along with James. Then there was Matthew. He was martyred at Ethiopia, being slain with a pickaxe, which is a weapon with a pick on one side and an axe on the other side. Philip was killed in Parga. He was scourged. He was whipped. He was thrown into prison. And afterward, he was crucified. Then it was Thomas who excited the rage of the pagan priest. And while he was preaching, he was killed. They took a spear and thrust it through his body. John was on the Isle of Patmos in exile. And after escaping a pot of boiling oil that they were going to burn him in, 
And he later returned and died at an old age. James the younger, the less, was beaten and stoned and had his brains bashed out with a fuller's club, which was a, a weapon or a tool to spread and groove iron. Thaddeus was crucified with the others at Odessa. Nathaniel was cruelly beaten and crucified upside down. Simon the zealot was crucified in the same manner at Judea. Peter, along with the other saints, Nero sought to have put to death. The Christian historian Jerome tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, requesting to be crucified that way because he said, I'm unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. These men were all in for Jesus. This was no game. It was not a social experiment. It was a lifelong commitment, even to death. They had decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The ultimate sacrifice of all was Jesus Christ, the son of the living God who laid his life down on that cross for each and every one of us, the perfect lamb of God who knew no sin, yet took sin upon himself. All the sin of mankind, all the sin that's in this room, he took it upon himself so that not just we could be saved, but generations who follow could be saved. The price that Jesus paid for salvation, it's unimaginable, uncomprehensible. The price that was paid for by others to preserve this gospel and get it to us today. Hard to even imagine, but I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did.